Well, hello. Welcome to Dark Stories from the Campfire. It is the time of year when some believe the veil between the material world and the spiritual realm is non-existent, and who knows what might come through. This is our Halloween episode, and hence all stories will be centered around that theme. For our first dark story, we find a young apprentice huddled in fear next to his master, for he has conjured a spirit he cannot control. We present to you, Raising the Dead. I'm going to die here, I am certain of that. I have been trapped here for, I would say, three days now, crouched next to my master. I do not have any idea how to reverse what he has done, and I can see them all around me, merging and distorting with the other shadows around them. I can't sleep for fear of breaking the circle, but I am more afraid to stay in it. I write this for whoever may find me, so that they know what would happen here, to know what happened to me. My master was originally a cartographer, and somewhat of a religious leader by trade, and I was accepted into his care almost a year ago. My father, sensing I had little skill for metallurgy or woodcutting, sent me off to my uncle, who in turn traded me off to learn how to chart the world. An admirable talent, I was told, as new discoveries were being made so fast, each year new maps were needed for expeditions across the ocean and around the world. Up until a month ago, my master showed no interest in the spiritual realms, outside of those he taught every Sunday, of course, and was disdainful of the occult. Utter rubbish that will only lead you down one descending path, he would tell me, and I was equally forbidden to possess any such literature. However, one afternoon a letter was delivered that sent him into distress that he fled to his room and did not come out for several days. When he did emerge, he handed me a note that merely said, to the bookseller, now go, and I was off. The bookseller wasn't too far from our shop. When I handed the proprietor the note, he looked at me inquisitively. Are you sure Signor needs this? I nodded, saying that whatever is on the note, he needed. Dangerous book, he responded, putting the note in his pocket. It may take a few days, but I do know of someone who has the book. I thanked him and quickly returned to the shop to inform my master of our conversation. He nodded gently, all the while staring at the floor. Very good, is all he said. I tried to inquire as to what happened, and what the letter contained that caused his depression, that the book I was sent to acquire would help. Not a word did he say, but kept his head down as he slunked back to his room. Several days later, a messenger arrived at the door with a package. My master, who had seemed like all the life in him had been extinguished, now moved as though it had been ejected back into him. Placing the package on the table, he broke the rope binding and peeled back the cloth wrapping. Before him laid a large book with solid silver binding and black writing heavily indented into the front cover. What is it? I asked, to which my master responded, a dark book that contains spells and other incantations. I didn't understand. What use would my master have with this book? I asked as such, and my master, tracing the letters with his finger, answered back, To raise the dead, my son. There was silence between us for several minutes. At length, my master finally turned to me. I'm sure you are confused, he began, and have numerous questions, especially considering my role in the community. But fear not. 
The letter I received a few days ago, the one that sent me into despair, was from an old acquaintance writing to inform me that a close friend had died. We were like brothers, and we loved each other equally. But some years ago, we had a falling out over a disagreement, I am sad to say, and we had not had any communication since. Well, he did try to write me once, hoping to reconcile, but I refused to reply, and left the letter in the trash. It has pained me ever since. Now that I have been told of his passing, I would like to try to communicate with him at least one last time, to apologize, to give us both an ease of mind. True, this book is forbidden, but I have heard tales of its reliance in conjuring spirits. I continued to stay silent as he spoke, still not believing what he was telling me. My master stepped forward and put his hand on my shoulder. I can't do this without you, he said. I need an assistant. He then instructed me to find the purest of salt and some rosemary from the garden, as well as some candles and river foam. In three days' time, my master told me, when the veil between the living and the dead is at its weakest, we will contact our dear friend and put our differences behind us. And so it was. Over the next few days, I gathered the ingredients my master requested, and every now and then listened to him practicing the incantations. I must confess, I was worried. Didn't my own master preach about communicating with the spirit realm and how dangerous it could be? The dead could be unpredictable. How could he be sure a ghostly attack is not a possibility? My master must have sensed my apprehension and asked me how I felt. I told him outright and he assured me everything would be under control. The salt, he said, would create a barrier separating us and the shade of his friend. The rosemary and river foam, when heated, created an aroma spirits find revolting and hence would protect even further. Don't worry, my son, he said in conclusion. Everything will be fine. And I trusted him. For what choice did I have? The day of the conjuring finally came. I helped my master move the tables and chairs from our workshop so we could have an open space to work. Once cleared, we set the candles up and lit them. We then formed a circle around us using the salt and heated up the mixture of rosemary and river foam until steam was rising off the solution. My master lifted the book, opening it to a pre-marked page and began to recite a certain passage, stopping every now and then to indicate to me what I needed to repeat. A few minutes after starting the ritual, I began to see shadows in the corner of my eye. My master began to recite the passages faster and louder again only stopping for me to repeat what was just said and the shadows began to grow more and more prevalent i could now see them walking around in front of me no longer in the corners the candlelight grew brighter before finally bursting to twice their size when the light subsided there in front of us stood a translucent figure with a long beard is this him master i asked when i did not receive an answer i turned to look at my master who had a terrified look on his face and he was clutching his chest. Then, without warning, my master fell into my arms and I lowered him gently to the ground. I asked if he knew the spirit before us, but all that was emitted from his mouth was a raspy breath as he shakily pointed his finger. I looked up at the spirit, who had a sinister smile draped across his lips. Moments later, my master passed. And now, I am stuck in the circle of salt. The shadows are all around me, and the figure has not left. I have no idea how to banish the spirits. The candles have burnt out and the mixture has lost its scent. I fear it is only a matter of time before the circle is broken 
and the spirits enter. For a second dark story, a young boy, excited for the gray pumpkin, finds an odd box in his room. When the box is open, the boy begins to act strangely, and his mother begins to wonder who he really is. We present to you, Gift Box. Miles was excited. So excited, in fact, he could hardly sleep. The great pumpkin was coming, and he wanted to be awake as soon as possible to see what had been left for him. No sooner had the sun risen, Miles was awake, leaping from his bed, dead set on making it down the hall as fast as he could to the living room where the great pumpkin always left his treats and gifts. But Miles didn't make it out of his room as quickly as he had wanted. For sitting in the middle of his room was a small wooden box with gold hinges and a lock. Miles knelt down to look at the box and turned it this way and that. Was this his gift? He played with the lock, trying to open it to see if his stuff was possibly inside. The lock, however, was firmly secured to the box. Miles fiddled with the hinges, looking for another possible entry point before his mother entered the room. I thought I heard you were up, she said to him. Come and get some breakfast. I do not want you filling up on candy this early, especially before school. Miles dropped the box and with a huff said, yes, mommy, and followed his mother down the hall towards the kitchen and breakfast. In between mouthfuls of scrambled eggs, Miles asked, Mommy, do you have the key to the box the great pumpkin left for me? What box, honey? His mother responded. The box in my room. I can't get it open, Miles replied back. Um, no, honey, I don't think so, his mother said with a smile, sitting down to start her breakfast. Miles' father entered the kitchen and poured himself a cup of coffee. Turning around, he looked at Miles. You better hurry up, pal. You need to get ready or you'll miss the school bus, his father told him. Finishing up his breakfast, Miles made his way back to his room, only to find the box, which had been tightly locked, was now open. He quickly ran over to it and began to search inside. Nothing was in the box, no toys, no candy. Disappointed, Miles dropped the box on the floor and began getting ready for school. What he didn't notice was not only was the box open, but so was his closet. Now ready for school, Miles made his way back down the hall to the kitchen where his backpack was. His mother was finishing up the dishes, but did turn to him to wish him a good day and to ask if he was excited about trick-or-treating later that evening. Miles nodded that he was and slipped his backpack onto his shoulders. As his mother went back to doing the dishes, she thought she heard something slam down the hall. Turning the water off, she turned back around and called out Miles' name. When no answer came, she went down the hallway to see what may have caused the noise. There she found Miles sitting on his bed, feet dangling off the side looking down. She entered the room and sat down next to Miles, asking if he was alright and had he hurt himself. The child sat silent for a moment before his mother asked again if he was okay. All he replied was with, yes mommy, in a quiet voice. His mother wondered if he was feeling okay, then placed her palm against his head. Miles did seem a little warm and looked a little pale. It is all that excitement and candy, isn't it? I suppose you should stay home today. I'll call the school and let them know, she said to him. Lifting his shoes off, she laid Miles down on his bed leaving to call the school. When she hung up, she was startled to find Miles sitting at the table, drawing. 
His mother placed her hand over her chest and took a deep breath to calm down, and asked what Miles was drawing. He didn't answer, and his mother took a few steps closer to the table. She could see he was drawing a house with some figures outside, but inside the house was what looked like a box. Is that our house? she asked. Miles only responded with, yes, mommy. For several hours, Miles sat at the kitchen table, coloring. This behavior struck his mother as odd. Miles rarely, if ever, sat for more than five minutes, let alone for hours on end. Not only that, though Miles did have coloring books, they sat untouched on his bookshelf, and she never saw him coloring before. Maybe he is too exhausted to be energetic, she thought to herself. In the afternoon, his mother asked if he wanted to take a break for some lunch. Again, Miles did not answer right away. How about a small snack then, his mother offered. Miles, still coloring, replied, Yes, Mommy. His mother prepared his favorite snack, saltine crackers and peanut butter. She placed the plate next to him, rubbed his head, and left him alone to pull the clothes from the dryer. When she returned with the basket, Miles was no longer sitting at the table. She found him on the floor of his room next to the box, with peanut butter smeared all over him and the crackers crushed on the carpet. Oh, honey, his mother raced towards him, dropping to her knees next to him and pulling him close. After helping him change and helping him back into bed, Miles' mother sat down next to him and asked what the matter was. Why has he been acting so strangely today? Miles just lay there, staring up at her. His mother rubbed the side of his face. Did you want to go back to coloring, she asked. Miles only responded with, Yes, Mommy. Leading him back down the hall, Miles' mother sat him down at the table and watched as he picked up his crayons, resuming his coloring. His mother watched him for a while, still trying to think of what was wrong. She sighed and shook her head. She had no solutions. She picked up the watering can, filled it in the sink, and walked over to the living room window to water the flowers. As she approached the window, the school bus pulled in front of the house. As she watered the plants, she watched the neighborhood kids pile out and run to their respective house. And yet, followed closely behind, she saw Miles also exit the bus. He noticed her in the window and waved excitedly before running up the front drive. Behind her, Miles' mother heard a laugh and someone say, Yes, Mommy. She turned to find a small green creature standing on the kitchen table with a box underneath his arm. As Miles entered the house, the creature jumped down and ran out the back door. Before we continue with our dark stories, let's take a moment to catch our breath and try to regain our senses. For a third dark story, a gentleman, on his way home, finds an odd object in the road. But when the man starts acting frantically, the source of his disturbance is not what he expected. We present to you, the severed hand. Henry was on his way back home, for he had been coming back from town and hadn't really slept in a few days, when he happened to come across a severed hand in front of his house in the middle of the road. At first he didn't know what to make of it. Perhaps it is a trick someone is playing on me, Henry thought. 
It is Halloween after all, and such behavior is not only accepted, but also encouraged. There is no telling what one might find around their house on this particular holiday. Henry ignored it and entered his house. But after a few minutes, Henry found himself thinking back to the severed hand. Maybe I should bring it in, he thought. Surely it belongs to someone and who knows, they might want it back. Henry retrieved the hand and set it down on his table. It was unseasonably warm out, and with the long walk home, Henry was tired and decided to lay down for a little bit. But no sooner had he rested his head on the pillow, when from the other room it sounded like something was scratching. Confused, Henry went back out to check on what might be causing the noise. He stood for several minutes listening before searching. When he couldn't find a source, Henry shrugged, returning to his room. Once more, as soon as his head touched the pillow, the scratching returned. It has to be some rodent, Henry thought, that has burrowed its way in. He searched again, but could not find any indication that a small creature has made its way into his home. For a moment, he stood and stared at the hand on the table, wondering if, by some chance, the hand had reanimated itself, and that was the origin from the scratching sound. Henry poked at the hand, but it did not react. He poked again. The hand lay still. Henry returned to his room, not sure what to make of the sound. He did not lie down this time, but sat, ready to pounce once the scratching was heard again. He sat for some time, staring at the floor, waiting for the sound. Finally, he laid his head upon the pillow, and with a few minutes he could hear not only scratching, but movement along the walls as well. He sprang from his bed, racing to catch the culprit in action. All he found was silence and the hand on the table. Henry was frantic now, pulling plates and cups out of the cupboard, tossing them this way and that. Once the cupboards were bare, he took a step back. Where is it coming from, he shouted to himself. There has to be some explanation. While he cleaned with the mess he had made, he did not hear any scratching or movement. He approached the hand and began to wonder if he had been cursed when he brought it into the house. He did, after all, have no idea who it belonged to. Perhaps some witch was using it as spell, he thought. But then, this is silly. I just need some solid sleep. But Henry did not return to his room right away. In fact, he lingered a little bit and paced back and forth. When he was satisfied the noises would not return, he made his way back into his room. This time, however, he was able to relax and begin to drift off to sleep. He was awoken a few minutes later by more scratching and noises. Furious, Henry began to tear things off the wall and turn over chairs and flip the table onto his side, sending the hand flying into the air. The noises continued, and Henry grew more frantic, tearing at the floorboards, determined to find out what was causing the sounds. After puncturing a hole in the ground from his hammer, there came a knock at his door. Henry rose from his knees, dropping the hammer. Another knock. Henry unlocked the door and opened it just enough to expose an eye to whomever might be on the other side. When his eye looked out, he saw a short gentleman with a satchel flung around his neck, and behind him, sniffing the ground, were six dogs. Can I help you? Henry's eyes snared. I'm terribly sorry to bother you, sir, the visitor said, but I believe I may have dropped something on my way to the farm up the road. Henry did not say anything, but let his one eye peer back at the visitor. At length, Henry finally said, What is it you think he dropped? It is a root, the visitor replied, though not a common root. This one is quite special. 
Henry continued to stare at him. You see, the visitor continued, my dogs, who are trained to fetch certain plants, seem to think I dropped the root around here when I pulled out my water pouch. Sometimes they can get a little overzealous in their search, so hopefully they didn't bother you. What do you mean? Henry's eye asked. Well, um, a couple of them had gone ahead and beaten me here, said the visitor. And when I came around the bend, I noticed they were scratching at the outside of your house and roaming around the property close to where they were scratching. Which, unfortunately, in this case, is how they are trained to react when they detect the smell of the root. You have not seen anything, have you? Henry, still with one eye showing, replied, No, I have not seen any roots. Are you sure? the visitor asked. This is a very special root, worth quite a lot. You can't miss it, actually. Some people say it looks like a human hand. Henry was shocked. It couldn't be. It just couldn't. Henry turned to look to where the hand had landed during his outburst, but all he saw, lying on the ground, was a large, five-fingered, twisted root. For our fourth and final dark story, we follow a group of friends on their way to a party. But when they meet a newcomer to the town who begins asking questions, a strange ritual is revealed. We present to you, the quiet friend. Tiffany and Amber were getting tired of waiting and began to call out to their friends. A few minutes later, Larry, Mike, and Ryan were coming down the path holding a lantern. Mike stopped them for a second, darted into a clump of tall trees where everyone could hear metal banging around before rejoining Larry and Ryan to make their way back to the car. Amber was leaning against the hood and asked, Why do we have to do this every year? It's weird. Come on, Larry said, getting behind the wheel. It's tradition. And you know what they say if you break tradition, right? Especially on Halloween. Mike chuckled at this as he and Ryan settled into the back seat, tossing the lantern at their feet. Tiffany quickly jumped at the passenger side. Amber Huff took a deep breath and got into the back seat with the other two. So, after talking, we decided that Ryan would be the quiet one tonight. Isn't that right, Ryan? Larry said with a grin, looking into the rearview mirror into the back seat. Tiffany sighed, saying, Obviously, but whatever. It's your weird little ritual. I just want to get to the party before everyone else leaves. With that, Larry shifted the car into drive, and they headed off to the party. Even from down the street, they could hear the music blaring. The entire street was lined with cars on both sides. Mike grew tense in the back seat and said, See? I told you we should have left earlier. Now we'll have to walk, which, if I need remind you, is much tougher later than it is now. Larry just laughed and told him to hold his horses, then stopped in front of the house, double parked. Well, Larry said, get out. I'm sure I'll find a place the next street over, and I will just come to get you when we are finished. The rest of the car agreed, and Mike, Ryan, Tiffany, and Amber shuttled themselves up the front walk to the open front door where they could see people milling about and dancing. Tiffany and Amber were quickly lost to the crowd, while Mike and Ryan pushed their way towards the back to a group of couches pushed to the side. Okay, buddy, are you going to be okay here? Mike asked Ryan. I'm just kidding, you'll be fine. Just hang out here with everybody else. After leaving Ryan on the couch, Mike noticed Larry talking with someone he didn't recognize and made his way over to greet them. Hey, Larry said as Mike approached, this is Sherry. Apparently she moved here from the city. The three chatted for a few minutes, talking about this and that, and they asked if she had any time to get out and meet some new friends. 
to which she replied she hadn't due to her school workload. She was studying forensics, she told him. Finally, Sherry pointed at the couches in the corner where Ryan and a handful of people sat and asked, Okay, what is up with that? Why are they all just sitting there, not interacting with anyone? Oh, that's right, you wouldn't know, Larry explained. Mike then jumped in. It's a Halloween tradition, years ago, like a long time ago. People who lived here believed they were being haunted or attacked by ghosts. So to counteract this, to protect their families, if a relative had died the week before Halloween, they wouldn't bury them right away. Rather, they would preserve them as much as possible and prop them up in the living room or kitchen or something. Why would they do that? Sherry asked. They thought that if the spirit saw the dead body, they would move on to the next house, believing a spirit was already there, Larry finished. It's dumb. Anyway, after a while, the bodies became known as the quiet ones because they didn't make any noise to attract the spirits. So now, when a group of people go out on Halloween, they designate a quiet one to ward off the evil spirits. I guess ghosts are too dumb to tell the difference. It's a dumb tradition. Sherry just nodded as she sipped her drink. The party went on for several more hours, and it was well into night before Tiffany found the rest of her friends and asked if they could go home. Yeah, I'm partied out, Larry said. While Larry ran off to fetch the car, the other four stood on the sidewalk. Mike shook Ryan. Hey, it's over. You can talk now. Hello? Just leave him alone, Amber told Mike. I'm too tired to deal with this right now. You know we have one last thing to do, right? Mike responded back. Can't you just drop us off at home, Tiffany pleaded. It was then Larry pulled up in the car. After piling into the car, they drove in silence back the way they came and it wasn't too long before they were parking once again in the cemetery. Don't worry, Larry said to Tiffany and Amber. You two wait in the car. We'll be done in a second. Oh, don't forget the lamp. Mike, Larry, and Ryan made their way down the path they were earlier and into the darkness, using the lamp to find their way. Again, Mike stopped them to run over to the bushes, and after the clanging of metal was heard again, emerged carrying two shovels. Walking a little bit down the way, the three stopped, and Larry turned to Ryan. Well, he said, it's been fun, but this night has to end sometime. You have been a good friend. Mike nodded and helped lower Ryan down into his coffin. Mike then handed Larry a shovel. They began pushing dirt back down to the hole. About 20 minutes later, they finished, picked up the lantern, and made their way back to the car. Though not too far away from them, they could see a handful of other lanterns dangling in the dark. Looking over at Mike, Larry said, it looks like everyone else is ending their night as well. Thank you for listening. This now concludes Season 1 of our Dark Stories. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at the link below for updates on Season 2. We'd like to thank everyone who listened, enjoyed our stories, and supported us throughout our first season. Thank you very much. We will be taking some time off so we can prepare for Season 2, so there will be no new stories for the upcoming weeks. Stay safe out there, and we'll see you for Season 2 on Dark Stories from the Campfire.